for Redeemer family. Um, we're going to continue worshiping the Lord by allowing him to speak to us through his word. And um, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis 26. We're going to read all of it except for the final two verses. I think they better fit with the next chapter. And um, so we'll get to that next week. Genesis uh, 26. I've entitled our time in the word this morning, um, God takes away in order to give. And you'll notice a theme uh, in this passage of, of stripping away. Um, you'll notice the passage begins with a famine. And when the passage ends, Isaac is throwing a feast. And um, that's a reminder to us that God will often take things away uh, to give us so much more, uh, more being himself and, and these things that we're going to read about in our passage this morning. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for we feared my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, for Rebekah was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, this water is ours. So he called the name of that well Esek, because he, they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna and he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. 
Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phico, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? saying that you hate me and have sent me away from you. And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and, and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So Isaac made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for images of famines and wells and lies and your blessing. Uh, thank you for putting this in your scriptures. Uh, Jesus, we know that all of the Bible is about you, and so we ask that we would see you in it. Build up your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've probably watched a movie or read a book, and you encountered what authors and filmmakers call analepsis. And don't worry, that's just a fancy name for a flashback, and they're powerful. So my wife and I recently watched a cooking show, and a famous chef returns home to take over a struggling family restaurant, and it's much harder than he imagined. His family is dysfunctional, his relationship with his mother is strained, he rarely came home when he moved away. He won't call his sister when he first returns. His brother was in financial debt. His brother ended up taking his own life. He struggles to date. The restaurant is barely making it. And then you get these flashbacks where you get to go back in time and the, you, you get to learn more about this restaurant and more about this character. The writers take you to a dinner table that is just noisy and chaotic. They take you to a moment when his mother drove a car in the house during a dinner. They take you back to arguments and rifts in the family and alleged uh, drug abuse. And then they bring you back into the present and it all makes sense. Based on that flashback, it makes sense. You understand him and the situation more accurately. I say that because many scholars, I have about eight books that I'm kind of looking at in Genesis, and over half of them say that the passage that we're reading this morning is a flashback, which means that the events here that we're seeing now more than likely happened before Isaac and Rebecca had children. Here's what Ralph Davis says. He said, right before our passage, we have Jacob and Esau as grown men in the transfer of the birthright. 
Right after it, we see a 40-year-old Esau contracting dubious marriages. And in between sits Isaac trying to pass off ravishing Rebecca as his sister. The she is my sister routine would have never worked if they had children calling out mommy or daddy around Rebecca's tent. This means that more than likely the events in verses 1 through 33 occurred sometime during the first 20 years of their marriage before they had any children. If chronology isn't driving the passage, then what is? I'd submit that one reason this could be here is because we saw, Esau, we saw Jacob posturing to get the blessing, but we never quite understood how Isaac's estate became so large where Jacob would want it, right? This passage is going to tell us that Isaac's estate grew exponentially, perhaps before these boys were born. But I don't think that's the, 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 the reason that's driving this passage. I think the passage is here because think about it. Of all the patriarchs, we know the least about Isaac. Y'all with me on that? You got basically three chapters with Isaac. You got when Isaac is a boy and he's about to be sacrificed. But because of Abraham's faith, the Lord will provide. Isaac is spared. He's passive there, right? You get when Sarah dies and Abraham goes to his servant and says, put your hand under my thigh and make a covenant with me that you will not find for Isaac an unbelieving wife, but that you will go to Padan Aram, not the Canaanites, not the Hittites, none of the, the pagans. You go far and you find him a wife, a believing wife, and you bring her back to my son. And Isaac is out in the field kind of meditating. He's passive and his wife is brought to him. In other words, you see Isaac in the Bible really benefiting from Abraham. But you never really get a chapter where you see Isaac's embracing Abraham's God as his own God. And that's what's happening in this passage. This passage is going to end with Isaac making an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. And that is not coincidental. You see, I think what the author of Genesis is doing is saying Isaac is the rightful heir. But he is more than a physical descendant of Abraham. He is a spiritual descendant of Abraham. His father made altars and cried out to the Lord in faith. And this is the one time in the Bible where Isaac does that. It's as if the author of Genesis is saying, this is how the Lord redeemed Abraham's son. And beloved, this is important. Can you believe that God is bent on making his people trust him? If he, is, if he has called you to Jesus, he will so impact your life. Well, you will bow the knee and you will treasure him 
and you will marvel in his character and his promises. But the road there is not always easy. And that's what I want us to think about. God is taking away in order to give Isaac something great, namely himself. And so let me start with this. God draws us to himself by taking things away. Now, this is a way God can draw us to himself. I'm not saying this is the way, but this, is a, it, this seems to be a normative way. God draws us to himself by taking things away from us. Our text begins, beloved, with a famine. Now, there was a famine in the land. And notice how the author of Genesis tells us, and don't get this confused with the famine that you read about in Abraham's day. You see that? And so I, I think the author of Genesis wants us to say, okay, what's, what happened in Abraham's day? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, you will remember Abraham was called out of his father's house to follow the Lord. And so that is in Genesis 12, one through nine. All right. He's called, follow me. I will make you great. I will be with you. Right. Well, guess, guess, guess what? The first thing Abraham encounters as soon as he leaves is a famine. There's a famine in the land. Now think about the logic there. I call you, follow me into this famine where you're not going to have food, right? God's stripping away, stripping away security. But it doesn't just stop there with Abraham. You know that Abraham and Sarah were barren. They were childless for a really long time. And you might also remember the passage in uh, Genesis 20, 26, where Abraham's wife, Sarah, was seized by another king named Abimelech. We think this is a, maybe a family name. Do you see what's happening? Abraham called into a famine. They experienced barrenness and then the threat of his wife being taken. And that's exactly the path that Isaac is walking. He's been called and they experienced barrenness and there's a famine and Isaac is encountering the same threat of having his wife snatched away. Now, if you step back and look at scripture, you discover this. The God who calls you will often call you and allow you and I to encounter loss, heartache, fear, and bitter providences. But what if I told you that God does more than allow it? What if I told you that he's behind it? While not being the author of sin, by being free to use secondary causes and even the sinfulness and sins of his people, what if he not only allows it, but he orchestrates it. You see, that's why I had Brian read from Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Psalm 104 says, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. 
and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and for plants for man to cultivate. You cause us to bring food from the earth and you give us wine to gladden the heart and you give us bread to strengthen our heart. We like the animals all look to you to give us our food in due season. And when you give them, we gather it up. When you open your hand, we are filled with good things. But when you hide your face, we are dismayed. You see what Psalm 104 is saying? You can't have it both ways. You can't ascribe that all good gifts come from above. You can't only ascribe to water and provision. They come from the Lord. And guess what else comes to him from him? He decides I might withhold water. You catch that? We don't like that. But that's exactly what I think is happening. Who for a moment is taking food away from Isaac? Who for a moment is shutting his hand? Who for a moment to use language from our confession of faith, allowing Isaac to experience the threat of having his wife taken. And he is not the author of sin who works through secondary causes to accomplish his will. If we're honest, this is a bit unsettling, right? Because we see that God is behind the bitter providences. This means, beloved, that some seasons in your life will all walk through them and they will be seasons of immense loss and pain. And it's going to be hard. You know, C.S. Lewis found himself in this situation. If any of you know C.S. Lewis's story, he married later in life. I think he was 59 or 60. And he married, um, and he writes, he says, look, Lord, it's a funny thing. At the age of 59, the sort of happiness most men have in their 20s. Thou, O oh Lord, has kept the best wine until now. So that's him writing about marrying this woman when he's almost 60. And he's like, look, this is like what Jesus did. You, you brought out the best wine. Well, here's what you forget about his wife. She got cancer and she died three years after they got married. And he wrote the book, A Grief Observed. And here's what he writes there. Not that I, not that I think I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe there's such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But the conclusion I dread is this. So this is what you're really like? You take? You inflict pain? He says, C.S. Lewis, deceive yourself no longer. You catch that? He's coming to grips. This isn't arbitrary. The sufferings and afflictions and the losses in life are not arbitrary. They come from the hand of a powerful and good and amazing God who is not the author of sin. And that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? It puts us in a weird tension Loved when it doesn't quite look like it. Loved when it doesn't quite feel like it. 
but it's here in the Bible. Which moves us to our second point. God draws us to himself by allowing us to fail. When these moments come, beloved, they can bring out the worst in us. The Bible reminds us that our heroes and sheroes in the faith are imperfect beings. Isaac fares pretty well initially. They're barren, so he prays, right? But if you keep reading, you can watch him cave under the weight of the sorrow. First notice that when the famine comes, he first travels to Gerar, to Abimelech, to the king of the Philistines. Now, why would he go there for? Go there first, because if you had a map, you would see that that Gerar is closer to the water. It's more inland. And so we think that he perhaps went there hoping that that they had food and that, that the king had storehouses that he'd be willing to share. But then God's words to Isaac reveal what we think his final destination was. Look at verse two. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Rather dwell in the land I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. In other words, God is telling him, don't go to Egypt. Now, why would he go to Egypt? That's what Abraham did. That's what Joseph is going to do. That's what Jacob is going to do. The rule of thumb, if you were living in the desert and you were a nomad moving from place to place and a famine came, you went to the Fertile Crescent. You went to Egypt where they had water, where they had food. That's what you do. You go to another king and you go to another country and the Lord comes to Isaac and says, not you. You stay right here inside of this. You stay in this land while the famine is going on. Now, that's hard, but you keep reading and it makes more sense. So Isaac settled in the land God told him to settle in verse six. He settled in Gerar. And then the men of the place asked him about his wife. He lied and said, she is my sister, for we feared that they will kill me because she is beautiful. Rebecca's stunning. And it came at a cost. She was a commodity. And the men in that region would take her, could take her and kill off her husband. And so Isaac lies, just like Abraham did. And you know, I get it. The sorrow is piling up. They were barren. But at least they had each other. They were poor and during a famine, but at least they had each other. And if some of y'all are married, you know what those early days of marriage might be like eating beanie weenies. Y'all know what those are? Pork and beans and, and hot dogs cut up. Some of y'all laughing because you know when I first got married, we ain't had no money, but you had love. And so you toughed it out. I imagine that that's Isaac. We might not have food, but we hungry together, boo. <laughs> and then the unthinkable happens. Now the one person he loves can be taken from him. And so he does what we all usually do in moments when we can't handle the heat. We turn to sin. And so he lies. He says, she's my sister. 
But he's caught in the lie, right? Look at verse 8. One day Abimelech looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah and underline that word laughing. Because I don't know what, what translations you might have, but, but the Hebrew for that word is not laughing, y'all. It could be fondling. <laughs> it could be flirting. It could be romantically touching. And so all of a sudden, this king looks out of his window and he said, brother, you've been lying to us. Sister and brother, do not touch like that. And Isaac is found out. Why? He didn't want to die. He didn't want his wife taken. And so he lied. And so here's the, the thing to think about. When God begins to strip away children, barrenness, when he begins to strip away security and food, when he begins to strip away health and comfort and spouse, be on the lookout for ways that you're tempted to take things into your own hand. I imagine Isaac saying, no, nah, Lord, you driving this, this, this car, I don't like where you're going, so I'm going to put myself in the driver's seat. I'm going to swerve on this plan, on staying here. I'm just going to lie a little bit. And that's us. Here's a question for you. When was something you desired, something that was good, taken? And how'd you do that? How'd you handle that? Is it a job that you've lost? A relationship, a dream, a future that you thought would look drastically different, your retirement, your health, a trip, the hope for love, meaningful connection with your spouse, your reputation. And those moments when the Lord begins to strip away, be on alert for you putting yourself in the driver's seat of your own future. And this is also a message to those of us who are watching people we love go through hardship. As we watch people suffer loss and lose jobs and bury children, who lose marriages, this passage reminds us that we got to pray for them. It's a hard place to be. This passage reminds us that we ought to be faithfully present alongside of them in the heartache because we see where this can lead. It can lead them into despair and defiance. Which moves us to our third point. God draws us to himself by blessing us in spite of our failures. Beloved, we live in a day and an age where blessing is overused and I would say significantly misunderstood. Everybody want a blessing. It's time for you to get your blessing. Time for you to get your breakthrough, right? That's kind of what you, I see you laughing, coach, because you hear it. That, that's all you hear about on social media is, girl, it's time for your blessing. And we just don't really understand what we're saying. 
And then I'm thankful for passages like this, which really are about a blessing. That blessing is a theme here. Notice verse three. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. Verse four, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Verse 12 and 13, the Lord blessed him and he became rich. Verse 24 and 25, fear not for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for Abraham's sake. Verse 29, you are now blessed of the Lord. So whatever's going on here, what God wants us to walk away from is a theology of blessing. And it's particularly a theology of blessing that's coming on the heels of failure and on the heels of suffering. But God is using the blessing to accomplish something great in the life of Isaac and I would say in our lives as well. And so what do we learn about God's blessing from this passage? First, God can bless you without needing to change your zip code. In other words, God did not tell Isaac, go to e Egypt. He said, no, you stay right here. Stay right here in the famished land. I don't need to change your situation and I don't need to change your zip code to do good to you. I can do it right there in this mess right here and right now. Go nowhere. He didn't leave. It says he sold in that land and reaped in that same year a hundredfold. You, you catch that? Secondarily, God blesses his people in spite of his people. God's blessing you is not dependent upon your faithfulness, but his unwavering faithfulness to you. It's strange when you read this through our American merit-based worldview where what, who you are is based on what you did and you are what you do. And if you score this on the ACT, then you get this. And if you do this, like, like everything in our world is a meritocracy. We, we perform in order to receive. And then you read this, this dude lying. He preferring one son because he got food. And notice what happens if you read like a straight through reading, like, like he lies. And then look at verse 12. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He lies and Abimelech comes to him. What have you done? You almost brought guilt upon us. I make an edict. Anyone who touches this man or his wife, you die. You catch that? Do you know how we would treat a liar? I need to see a pattern of truth telling before I treat you with kindness, right? That's just kind of how we act. I need to see you d do some penance that we will look at this dude who, who opened his mouth to lie and God says, but he's my liar. And I'm gonna open the ground and give him food. You, you catch how upside down this is? Third, God's blessing is in cooperation with us. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying the blessing is earned or deserved, but we make the mistake to think that God's blessing demands nothing of us. It's free and it's costly. Look at Isaac's actions in the text. He settled where God told him to settle. He sold where God told him to sow. 
He reaped where God told him to reap. He dug wells over and over and over and over and over again. If you look at the verbs in the text, you realize that Isaac is not just passive. Let me just sit up on my couch and kick my feet up and let God shower blessings on me. That ain't how this is reading. It says, Isaac, you stay. Okay, Lord, I'm going to stay. Isaac, you plant. Okay, Lord, I'm going to plant. Isaac, you reap. Okay, Lord, I'm going to reap. Isaac, you dig wells and I'm going to give you water. You, you catch what's happening here? Isaac isn't just waiting on blessings to rain down on him. What's actually happening is God is blessing the work of his hands. God is blessing Isaac's obedience. Y'all with me? Fourth, God's blessing in part is material. Look at verse 13 and 15. Isaac sowed, he reaped, and he became rich. He gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. And it's what Biggie say, right? More money, more problems. That's what happens here. He becomes wealthy. And then the Philistines look at him and they envy him and begin hating on him. And now, saints, this isn't normative and this isn't prescriptive. So whenever you read the Bible, you have to read it in its entirety. And the Bible is going to say that God's will is not for everybody to be rich. All right. The Bible will say, keep your life free from the love of money. The Bible will say you cannot love money and God. The Bible does say, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty lest I go and steal. Give me neither great riches lest I blaspheme your name. It says, who needs the Lord? And so I don't want you to build a theology around health and wealthism just by proof texting what you see here. And so I think the health and wealthers got to hear that, that the whole story of the Bible is not God's plan to make you rich. He's going to make you rich in Christ with a bunch of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And people got to hear that. But in our circles, I think we also have to be pushed on because I think we under materialize this idea of blessing in reacting from the abuse of materialism. And what you see here in this text, the Lord blessed him. Herds, water, shelter, food. And that's a reminder that God does care about our food. He cares about our clothing. He cares about shelter. Fifth, God's blessing on one level has nothing to do with us. The author of Genesis repeatedly refers to Abraham in this passage. The wells that Isaac digs were Abraham's first. The land that Isaac is in was Abraham's first. The famine that Isaac endured was Abraham's famine first. The encounter with Abimelech was Abraham's encounter with Abimelech first. And then you get it, verse 3, I will bless you and establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. 
Look at verse five, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Now through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Look at verse 24. I am the God of Abraham, your father. I am with you. I will bless you for my servant Abraham's sake. Y'all catch what's being repeated over and over again? On one level, Isaac is getting blessed because of somebody else. Now, here's a question for you. If God will remember his oath to Abraham, who obeyed his commandments imperfectly, how much more do you think God is set on blessing you through his own son? If he's treating Isaac like this because of Isaac's father, what do you think God's posture is towards you because of God's son? It is to do good to you. It is to provide for you. It is to sustain you. It is to uphold you. And guess what? It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon Jesus. Which moves us to our last sub point. God's blessing is himself. You'll notice in verse 28 that the Philistines can see that God is with Isaac. You might also remember what God told Abraham, behold, my covenant is with you. But here, twice in our passage, the Lord says something that he has not said yet before in Genesis. God says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Verse 24, fear not for I am with you. This is the first time in all of the Bible where God doesn't say my covenant is with you. He says, no, 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 fear not. I'm with you. The first time in all of the Bible is said to Isaac in the middle of a famine, in the middle of infertility, in the middle of his wife being snatched. The Lord says, I'm with you. Now we know where this terminates, right? This terminates in the giving of the Holy Spirit. It terminates in Emmanuel. God truly coming upon us truly dwelling with us, truly taking his residence inside of us. And saints, this is the highest blessing. It's better than food. It's better than material provision. It's, it, it's better than being blessed on account of my father. This is God himself who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will walk with you through this famine. I will walk with you through the suffering. I will walk with you through the uncertainty. And here's the thing. If you want to hear people testify of how beautiful this is, go ask somebody who done lived through some hard stuff in life. And you pull up a chair and you say, tell me, what did God do when you walked through cancer? How precious was his presence? What was it like when you lost your job and you did not know how ends would meet? Tell me about the beautiful presence of God in the midst of that. You see, if you pull up the chair to some old folks who done lived through some stuff, 
what they're going to tell you of all the things that we just talked about, what was the sweetest was the way that God drew near and made his presence known. Which moves us to our last point, and I promise y'all it's quick. Why does God do this? Why does he strip away? Why does he let Isaac fail? Why does he still bless him on top of the failures? Why? What is he doing it for? He does it, saints, that we might trust and worship him. That we might be transformed into a people who trust and worship him. You see, when Isaac experiences the loss and the restoration, the taking away of things, and then the acquiring of God and his kindness, it changes him. How does he respond to all of this? It's right there in verse 25. And the Lord appeared to him for the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you. Multiply your offspring for my servant's sake. Look at verse 25. So Isaac built an altar right there. And he called upon the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent right there. That's what he did. He bowed the knee. He built an altar he worshiped the Lord. Isaac had benefited from the kindness of Abraham's God. But in this passage, <laughs> Isaac gets God. Isaac is calling out all the names of these wells. I call you Esek. I call you Rehoboth. But in this passage, he calls out to the name of the Lord. That's what God is doing. Isaac. I want you to value me, to love me, to cherish me, to treasure me, to trust me, to obey me, to worship me. And the way I will get you there, I'm going to take. And I'm going to let you fall. And I'm still going to be there to bless you. And you will fall on your face and you will know that I am the Lord. Saints, I don't know what you're going through, but I'd encourage you to see whatever you're going through that's hard through this lens. Through this lens. And maybe you're a teenager and you've been benefiting from your parents' walk with the Lord, your home is stable, you have food on the table. Mom and dad, or just mom, or just dad, who loves Jesus, they love you. And you've been benefiting from that. This passage is just a nudge that you may go through hard things in life. Mom or your daddy may die. And you may lose your way one day. And boyfriends or girlfriends will break up with you and it'll hurt. And you may not get into the school that you want to get in. Or you may not be popular. And it'll feel like a stripping away. And you'll fret. And you may sin. And your God is still going to be there. Loving you and pursuing you. And reminding you that he is there for you. 
And one reason he might be doing all of that is to make you treasure him above all things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the way that it ministers to our hearts. May we worship you and love you and trust you and cherish you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.